0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast. That's Blue the Color, B E R Y L, or find all of our episodes on
2: com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to The Blue Barrel, a podcast for intelligent conversations about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and health humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today, I sit down with Reverend Nathan Jishin Mishan, a postdoctoral fellow at Ryokuku University, and an ordained priest in the Shingon Buddhist tradition. Our conversation touches on diverse Buddhist healing rituals and the role of light in Shingon practice and cosmology. We discuss the playfulness and innovation in modern Japanese Buddhism and the rise of chaplaincy after the 311 tsunami and nuclear disaster. We also talk about Nathan's ethnographic work and writing about chaplaincy, as well as their experiences volunteering in a listening cafe. Enjoy. And if you want to hear from more experts on Buddhist medicine and related topics, subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes. Nathan, it's great to see you. I know we just saw each other in Japan just a couple weeks ago, but good to see you here on Zoom now that I'm back at home. Where are you right at the moment? I see shelves of books behind you on our Zoom chat.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm based in Kyoto, Japan, and... I'm in my office at Ryokoku University, Kakusa campus. Thank you so much for navigating the time difference
2: and all of that and appreciate the flexibility. Yeah, no problem. So why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are, what your position there is, just a little brief bio so that they can know a little bit more about you.
1: Sure. My name is Nathan Jishin Mishan, and I use he or they pronouns. Starting from here and then stepping back, at the moment, I am doing a postdoc. At this university, they have a program as well, which trains Buddhist chaplains and Japanese Buddhist ministers in spiritual care. So I help a little bit with that program on the side, but mostly I'm doing research here. And I've been back and forth essentially as a little bit more ascetic practitioner and a longtime graduate student. I went through a master's in comparative religion, a master's of divinity in Buddhist chaplaincy and also did a little certificate program in Austria in peace and conflict resolution interned in Romania in a similar field then my phd was at gtu and the institute of buddhist studies in berkeley and Through that time, I spent actually most of it in Japan, especially in the Sendai area, which is where the really large tsunami occurred 10 or so years ago. And because of that, there was a huge blossoming of Buddhist chaplaincy in Japan. So I spent a lot of time looking at that emergence through the course of my PhD program.
2: That's the context in which we met, because you produced a translation of a text that had to do with Buddhist chaplaincy in Japan for an anthology that I was putting together, Buddhism and Medicine, an anthology of modern and contemporary sources, so we must have met in 2017 or so. Yeah. And uh, you're also ordained within the Shingon tradition. Yeah. uh, Tell us a little bit about that as well, because that's your other side of your practitioner-scholar identity?
1: Maybe I should step back a little bit more first to a complex path, but in a brief form, I was born and raised in a Catholic tradition, but around college time, I had always had a kind of weird experience as a bit of a black sheep part of the family. And when I discovered Buddhism in college, it was a little more of oh these are words for an identity that i think i am more than like a conversion type experience mm-hmm. and i started out a little more in zen and i spent several years growing in my practice of zen before it transitioned into Thai forest tradition, and then finally, after a number of years, this transition into the Shingon tradition, which is, yeah, Japanese Vajrayana, and became ordained. I'm still technically more of a novice priest, but a, a longtime experienced novice priest in the Shingon tradition. So there is a little bit of a melding in a way of those traditions that occurred for me. But I found for me personally that they worked. So some of the things I might talk about, they will be very much combined from some of my own personal experience, but also from academic reading and research into the texts, and also just living among Shingon priests for a number of years and some of the informal conversations that take place. So all of these three streams might be interwoven through the conversation
2: yeah that's a really interesting eclectic background in buddhism maybe we'll come back and talk more a little bit more about that later on
1: and so you
2: were telling me that you did at least part of your training for the shingon priesthood at koyasan in japan which is like the headquarters of the shingon tradition so what is it like being in a training program in Shingon in Japan. I think that's an interesting new perspective for us here.
1: It can actually take a variety of shapes depending on your teacher, especially in your relationship with that teacher. I think as in most Vajrayana traditions, the relationship with the teacher is very important and maybe even more so with my particular relationship with my teacher because I've known him for so long and we actually met his name, by the way, is Asahi Sensei or Asahi Seicho and he was previously the abbot of the Los Angeles Koyasuin Temple and lived in the US for, I think, around 30 years. So my training started over there, and one of the main basic Meditations in a Shingon tradition is called ajikan. It's a really broad word actually that can encompass a whole range of meditations, but in the basic sense it can include breathing exercises that are somewhat similar to basic breathing exercises in many other Buddhist traditions, but then can also go into what's called gachirin kan, which is more of a training in some ways similar to the meta meditations of theravada buddhism but much more light focused where you really imagine this kind of ball of light in the center of the body and that gradually grows to encompass the body but then stretches out that light ultimately to the world and the universe before condensing back into the body again. Then, ah, jikan, meditations. Speaking of the ah part, there's a lot of focus on this ah syllable. Like when we breathe out, for example, we can make a bit of an ah sound. like ah. And so this is also considered, in a sense, like this fundamental natural sound or wavelength vibe of the universe to focus the meditation on and combine that with visualization of the Sanskrit letter A and use that as a base of your concentration. So these kind of meditations are more like fundamental things that you practice and grow with usually with your teacher first and then when both when he says you're ready and when you have the time and circumstance you can go into the more deep meditations and learn other fundamental practices so then really fundamentally there's a four part training for shingon and it's similar for tendai buddhism as well and During that period, you have to be there three weeks straight, and it's an all-day practice from 3.30 or 4 a.m. right until the evening, and you're going to bed. So that's basically all you're doing every day, all day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: Thanks for walking us through that. I'm going to ask you about connections between Shingon and healing practice. But maybe before my question, I should just explain to the listeners that I was in Japan this summer for a month on a project for the Jivaka.net website, where the idea was to go around to about a dozen Buddhist temples in Japan and do interviews and photography and also 360 photography for virtual reality, um, immersive tours so that you can step into those environments and look around. But the choice of which temples to go to was largely based on connections between Buddhism and healing practices of various different kinds. And so we wound up at multiple Shingon temples. Shingon was well represented in that selection of temples because of a strong connection with healing in that particular lineage. I'm wondering if that's typical of your experience, and was that part of your training?
1: Yeah, so I would say very much, I, I think, compared to other Japanese lineages, maybe alongside Tendai to a degree. Even, for example, if you walk into Koyasan Library and into the stacks there, looking through the traditional meditation and ritual texts, there are just volumes and volumes of old ritual texts and commentaries on them about healing for different purposes and different types of healing on the more physical level for different types of diseases and maladies, but also, of course, on a more spiritual level and then related to different other beings that might be affecting a person. And of course, the ultimate type of healing in Shingon tradition, and I think many other forms of Buddhism, is more awakening itself. This would be getting down to the deepest layers of stress and suffering for the human condition. That, in a sense, is considered the ultimate form of healing. And so there's many varieties of healing ceremonies and texts related to those through the tradition and through its history that have developed. So I guess I'm wondering to what extent the Shingon
2: interventions or I don't know what the right word is, <laughs> Shingon's repertoire of helpful things to do for people who are sick. To what extent does that include meditations, visualizations, other kinds of rituals? I think you were alluding to maybe exorcism as part of that and other kinds of spirit management
1: rituals. It is really vast and diverse and more even than I can fully picture at the moment, because like I said, I've perused the library and some of these different texts, but it's just starting to get a handle on the whole variety of things that are and have been out there in history. I don't have time to really thoroughly look into hundreds and hundreds of old Japanese volumes of texts. But to what I have seen, yeah, it's usually very ritualized kind of service that will be performed. And they can be for specific types of maladies, or it can be A little more general ceremony just offered towards a particular person in their malady or issue. And when you mention like visualizations, I think much more so the focus is on the priests, their visualization. And there can be things that the practitioner or temple visitor or a temple member is asked to do as well so they might have certain at least basic visualizations during the ceremony or something that the priests might ask them to do afterwards as a practice and there's also traditionally ceremonies during the dying process as well and so the practitioner in that case might be asked to lie down in a hall or where they are laying down essentially on their deathbed, um, have a Buddha statue set up in front of them where they can in some ways directly see that Buddha in front of them, but also then more easily visualize that Buddha with their eyes closed. And they may have a string that they hold onto that is connected to the altar and be instructed in a particular mantra that they can say along with that when they have the energy. So there are things that the practitioner, depending on the circumstances and the situation, will be asked to do as well. Yeah, I'm fascinated that you brought up that example
2: of the Buddha statue and the string. I have encountered a description of that in a 7th century Chinese text. Oh, wow. So it's a very old tradition. I didn't actually realize it was still being practiced today.
1: At least for one interesting example, there is a hospice that was located on Shikoku Island, and a Shingon priest who was working and helping in that hospice facility. Shikoku Island is where they have a long, famous pilgrimage of 88 temples that go around the whole island that are all Shingon temples. And so there's more Shingon spirituality and tradition throughout that island in general than most places in Japan. But one of the elderly people who was in his dying process at this hospice facility, the Shingon priest wanted to access this tradition for him and so set up essentially a similar thing. And traditionally there would be priests located around him almost like a mandala with the dying individual at the center. And in this particular case, he adapted that so that he was on one part, but there was a doctor and nurse or other worker at the hospice who agreed to participate and help a little. And so sat around and helped with the chanting a little bit for the practitioner and made a kind of special ceremony for him to prepare for those dying stages that he was going into. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it is at least sometimes being accessed and adapted to modern times. Interesting.
2: So I was wondering, also you mentioned about the exorcisms, and I'm wondering... What does a Shingon exorcism actually look like?
1: So I should say, I haven't personally been a part of these kind of ceremonies, but I have spoken with a number of priests about them. So I it's more that kind of secondhand information. I'm sure a lot of it's secretive as well, since yeah. Shingon is an esoteric <laughs> tradition. Yeah, there are some parts of those conversations it were, yeah, I probably couldn't get too much into the, s- yeah. some things that I've heard as well. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Yeah, so an-
2: another, there's another term that I know is important within shingon ritual practice, particularly around healing, which is this term kaji. And I wanted to ask you about kaji, but before I did, I wanted to set the stage a little bit for an example of kaji that I saw in Japan this past month. And this was at a shingon temple in Kyoto. And they have a a ritual that they do periodically called the cucumber kaji. And so I actually participated in it. I went with a colleague and we wrote our names down on a sheet and our names were tied to the outside of a cucumber. And then the the Shingon priest went through a ritual that involved chanting and prayer and mantras and visualization. And as part of the ceremony, he was holding the cucumbers for each person while chanting their name and some other kinds of wishes for healing and so forth. And then we were instructed to take these, these cucumbers and to take them home and bury them or else there was a location in the temple. If for example, you were staying at a hotel like I was and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, would not be okay to bury the cucumber in the hotel yard, and then I could leave it there. The radiator. At the, yeah, I could leave it there at the temple and they had a location for for you to dispose of them and they would compost them. And my understanding from what I was able to glean of the ritual is that the idea is that the cucumber absorbs your illness and then you bury it. And that's like extracting the illness from your body. And I guess because cucumbers rot quickly, it rapidly removes the disease. And that was called a kaji Ceremony, and so yeah, I'm just wondering, as as my go-to expert on Shingon tradition, if you can help me to understand the, both the term kaji and then also what other light can you shed on that?
1: Um, sure. First, maybe I should step back a little and say, like I mentioned in the beginning, there's a huge, enormous variety of rituals, and in the Shingon tradition, and I'm not very familiar with this, and I'm not sure if it's something that more in the traditional corpus or if it's something that is more local to a particular temple, because there are also traditions that have developed very locally and become very localized. And just to say a little bit about Japanese religion and Japanese spirituality in general, as opposed to something like more in the U.S. and more Abrahamic traditions where people tend to belong to a particular church or synagogue, mosque, whatever, and go there on a regular basis and really belong to that particular community. In general, in Japan, there isn't much of that around at all. And Conversely, however, even though only close to 30% of people or even less these days will say they are religious, still nearly 90% of the population will have involvement with Shinto, around 80% of the population involvement with Buddhism to some degrees, and instead of being involved with a particular temple or shrine, it's much more different places will be known as the education or test prayer temple or coming down to specific maladies. There is a temple known for breast cancer rituals and healing and very specific issues like that. And so some of these temples then also have developed very specific traditions around that particular issue. So incidentally, one one of the temples
2: that we visited was for problems with your limbs, and you, you go to the temple to pray, to kanon to heal you from these from problems with your hands and feet and your limbs in particular and you could buy a little carved hand Mm. or foot or leg or what have you and take it home with you as sort of like a you know like a a blessing These, these objects you know whether it's a cucumber or it's a carving or it's a little tablet or a different kind of symbol can both be left at the temple in order to leave your bad luck there or it can be blessed and brought home and then it can bring you good luck back at your home. I'm just I'm just, you know, fascinated by all of the ways that What I saw in Japan was all of these innovations and the localizations and the fact that this one temple has their own sort of way of doing this for one particular reason or another. There's like the octopus temple where the octopus is the big healing Mm -hmm. object. And then you have the temple where it's healing water, another temple where they do like astrological kinds of healings. And it just seemed to me to be... Just this very almost playful, innovative, sometimes tongue-in-cheek. There's a lot of like puns and funny things. I don't know if there's a pun behind the cucumber, but I I just found it to be this really rich area for innovation and play, playfulness.
1: Yeah, to me, that's one of the really interesting things about being on the ground with Shingon tradition, because I feel like in a lot of the texts and a way a lot of the scholarship in English especially has portrayed it as well. The rituals are very set, and it feels incredibly structured with little leeway for movement. And from my conversations with other priests as well, I've, this is generally what I've heard. In the early stages, as a Shingon priest, you're much more Kind of confined to this ritual structure. But as you familiarize yourself with the system, then gradually you get to the point where you add more and more to this basic ritual structure. And as you said, the words you used play, I think it just becomes very organic on the ground in the way that tradition, that People, priests, will adapt and use these practices for particular situations that they see, and then traditions grow from that. Yeah, interesting. So
2: I just wanted to loop back to the question of kaji because we missed that one. And uh, I've read the word kaji also being used to describe sort of a healing ritual where the practitioner uses light, maybe similarly to the way that you were talking about with the visualization earlier, where you visualize light coming through from, I guess, from above you, like through your body and out your hands into the patient, sort of like a a way of healing remotely. and then I've heard you know, the word kaji used for the cucumber example that I just gave earlier. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can define kaji, because kaji seems to be the logic behind healing rituals frequently comes down to kaji. And I'm wondering if you can maybe define that for us and help us understand
1: that. Yeah, in, in some ways, it's, it is one of the most difficult terms to define in Shingon, I think, because it is <laughs> such a diverse term. And... In some ways, kaji can refer to almost any ritual within the Shingon tradition. So it's one of the broadest vocabulary words we have. There's one analogy that dates back to the founder of Shingon, Kukai. He describes kaji and this image of the light from the moon reflecting on a pond or some water and the kaji is like this reflection of the light so it still is in a way that light from in this case the moon being almost like the buddha or the light of the universe you are seeing and taking a part of that into you but it's indirect and that light of the universe, and in a sense, the most pure and awakened form, you are experiencing that, but it's not necessarily direct. And that image itself, it can be applied to almost any aspect of the Shingon tradition. And yet also, it can be the base to understand these more particular ritualized prayers. So again, it's really hard to encapsulate, but kaji is just this word that depending on the contexts, it can refer to a whole variety
2: and range of things. But, but this underlying metaphor of light, but actually it's not a, it's not a, just a metaphor. It's also something that's actually cultivated through visualization and cultivated through...
1: Yeah, um, and also very embodied. And I should also probably say this main figure in the Shingon mandalas and for a lot of the Shingon tradition, This Mahavaito Buddha is pictured at the center of the main mandalas and spoken of throughout the tradition. This Buddha is a personification of the pure form of awakened light that exists in some way throughout the entire universe. But it's just manifested in different ways and to different degrees so that when we have the whole picture of the mandala with all these different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and other beings, these are all considered manifestations in different ways of Mahavaito Buddha and that light. But it's just different characteristics and different types of that light depending on the situation and the circumstances. So this image of light and the visualizations with it are very central to the tradition as well can you say a little bit more
2: about what you meant when you said in passing that it's also very embodied yeah I'm cu- curious how this light also interacts with the body
1: so you like I said more at the beginning with the green Khan meditation that you visualize this pure light first in Mm -hmm. your heart area and then that expands out Mm -hmm. but it's something that you are very much paying attention to within the body itself (laughs) and so there are Mm -hmm. the sensations and perceptions around that as well as imagine and I guess more than imagine feeling this light within the body and then feeling that expand. I think there is this sense of the light and the body becoming one. And there are also visualizations, for example, where you imagine the light of a particular Buddha coming from that Buddha and down in through the top of your head, through the body, combining with the breath and then circulating back out to the Buddha and creating this union. It's like light from the Buddha, but also it's unification with that Buddha or with that, maybe we could say Buddha energy in the way it's almost described practice-wise. And then also being able to share that with other people then
2: as well. Like, in, like you were saying, projecting that light outward in order to right. you yes. know, this light, yeah. spreading that light to other beings or perhaps using that light to heal or to send healing intentions towards people. Right, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Sorry, a pause as I'm thinking like, what things can I share or can't I share? <laughs> yeah. Do we need to go back and delete anything? <laughs> I, I think we're okay. <laughs> All right. But um, yeah, I'll not say one thing I, I almost said. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I can say a little bit just about one of the main rituals in Shingon is goma, which is the fire ceremony. It comes from the Sanskrit word homa. And these shingon goma, there's a whole variety of them in a sense. It's fire, it's another form of light that is commonly used. But in especially in terms of healing, the fire is often very related to Fudo Myo or achala. And Fudo myo-o is this kind of deity or personification that is often pictured with, in a sense, very demonic looking with flames behind him and pointy teeth and with a big sword and rope that he's holding. And the rope is symbolic of catching Klesha's defilements and the sword cuts the connection to them. The flame is the symbol of burning away those defilements as well. And in the sense of trying to connect with this Fudo energy through the fire, that's also very key aspect of the ritualized and contemplative healing. Whether we're talking about these goma being dedicated to more physical or spiritual or these kind of ultimate spiritual awakening types of healing as well. So in some sense, it's like these goma rituals can be used very specifically for types of issues, but in other ways, they're often even essentially prayers, ritual meditations for world peace as you have that image of this burning away of the Klesias of the world, this image of the purification of the world itself or universe itself.
2: Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'm struck by the role that light is playing in your descriptions as this sort of unifier of mental, physical, energetic, global, personal, microcosmic, macrocosmic scale, and light is like the common. I don't know. I don't know if it's a substance is the right word, but the common force or the common phenomenological experience of all of those different things. So thanks for going into detail, Nathan. I, I know there's there's things that you're not allowed to talk about, and I. I appreciate you sharing as much as you have with us. I was thinking about a topic that we were mentioning earlier about the playfulness and the local innovations and creativity of Japanese Buddhism. And what I wanted to come back and ask you about that is to what extent do you feel, you being there on the ground and being part of these Buddhist communities, to what extent do you feel that some of this has to do with kind of the economic pressures of contemporary japan where Mm -hmm. i understand there's a secularization taking place and buddhism is in some respects being sidelined or in danger of being sidelined at least traditional buddhism is in danger of being sidelined and so that there's a whole lot of initiatives that i've noticed coming out of japan like ai robots doing dharma teaching for example and other kinds of modern i i don't know if they're gimmicks or if they're adaptations or, what, or how you would you would necessarily frame those, but um, there's a lot of this kind of activity taking place in Japanese Buddh- Buddhism from the temples or from the priest side in order to try to attract people back into the fold. Do you think this kind of playfulness and the creativity of localization that we were talking about earlier is something that's new in response to those economic pressures or is this kind of something that I, I feel like it's something that's been part of Japanese Buddhism for a longer time. But what do you think?
1: To some degree, I feel like there has been this adaptation that's just a natural part of traditions adapting to their circumstances through history and time. Because when we go back, we see also the creation of so many ritual traditions that are developed through the history of Shingon. And back 500, 800, a thousand years ago, they have maladies and issues of their time and they use some template of the tradition that's recognizable. But then there are adaptations and they work with that to treat the local people. And I should maybe just add real quick that historically, many of these priests operated not just as the temple priest, but they were often central figures in the community, whereas the temple could be the local clinic, so they could come for treatments, and priests could be essentially the local herbalists, nurses, in a sense, and have all these other roles to play. And so there were natural adaptations through history but yeah in modern times i think there are a lot of such creative adaptations and there are as you say these temple robots in some places and temple mascots to attract people and of course in contemporary japan especially in some of these traditional cities like koyasan there's a bit of tourist industry built up around that as well. They have Koyakun, which is a kind of cartoonish monk with the traditional hat and garb. Many people see him and they're like, oh, Koyakun, he's so cute. Let's take a picture with Koyakun. And it doesn't necessarily take away all the tradition because there are invitations to the tourists to take part in ceremonies and dharma talks geared towards them and invitations to partake in those ritual elements as well. But there are definite aspects that could also be seen very much as gimmicky i guess that's a good segue to talk about your
2: own work your scholarly work in terms of the emergence of buddhist chaplaincy as another kind of example of maybe an effort to push back against the sidelining of buddhism to make buddhism more central to modern society particularly you mentioned after the 311 disaster so maybe you can fill us in a little bit about how you see the history of chaplaincy in the last several years and how you've seen chaplaincy emerge and where you see it going?
1: In Japan, there were little bits of chaplaincy movement through the country before the tsunami and before this big disaster, but that really was a pivotal point. And and just to give people a little background because I hear people are familiar a little with Fukushima and part of the disaster that played out. But the main central point of this disaster was a little north. And so the earthquake was the fourth largest in recorded history. And this tsunami was so immense, reached up to a few miles inland, around 100 feet high at some of the highest points. And it basically within a day took away around 18,000 lives. So it was an immense tragedy that took place along this whole coastline covering around three provinces. And there were tons of people who went to volunteer and just trying to do something to help in that situation. And among these were also many Buddhists and Buddhist priests, uh, and sometimes bringing whole temple groups to try to volunteer. And so there's a lot of activity going around. But one of the issues that came up was people are trying to provide this kind of care and listening to survivors after that. And fairly quickly, the need for some training was realized. And a number of people who'd have either some chaplaincy background or a bit of psychology background, set up these kind of brief training periods for Buddhist priests and volunteers associated with those temple groups to just get some basic fundamental chaplaincy training. I should basically say a lot of chaplaincy is focused on what we call spiritual care and spiritual care is essentially it can have a variety of manifestations but a lot of it involves deep listening and presence with another and some of this is a little opposite from what many of the priests are used to because they're used to only speaking to people (laughs) and answering questions from their tradition. And so there's a kind of transition that people need to go through to more of just listening for what are the needs of the person in front of me and not being very careful not to even unconsciously work from your tradition's perspective in a kind of converting way or proselytizing way or even preaching type of way to this reflective what is the person's needs in front of me and how do I ask questions and be with them in a way that helps them answer their own needs at this present moment, and just be with them in a way that they need right now. Sometimes we can think of listening and just being silently with a person as something that's maybe easy, but it can take sometimes some significant training to work through those processes. And so Basically, these immediate training programs developed in kind of short-term training, but then the need was quickly realized. We need more long-term care for these survivors, but also there's so many other applications to this. There's a huge aging problem in Japan and many people who are facing death and dying that don't have... People with them to care for them, and a growing hospice movement, and people who are needed in that. And so, this then funneled into the creation of more permanent chaplaincy programs. And so, unlike chaplaincy in the US, where there's more of a Christian domination, in Japan, the majority of people being trained are buddhists and the majority of literature and programs are also buddhist in basis so there's also this kind of buddhist and japanese characteristic that come to the training and the care itself as well And now in total, from what I tracked, there were 11 grams that developed rather fully.
2: And so for your dissertation, this is what you focused on was detailing those chaplaincy training programs and looking at the founders and their pedagogies and so forth, looking specifically at some of the Shingon participants or practitioners within those circles and looking at how they were adapting Shingon rituals and traditions for this new yes. kind of spiritual care context. Yeah, I'm wondering how how did the ritual practices and so forth that we were talking about earlier in our conversation make their way into the contemporary Japanese chaplaincy movement?
1: Yeah, I gave one example earlier with the modern hospice and the adaptation of this right. ritual for a dying man within the hospice. But there's also a number of these Practices that are combined in with the listening and the spiritual care. And one of the central figures who I wrote a little about for your edited volume, Oshda Dayan, he started even well before the tsunami and he was trained as a music therapist. And certified and already working in hospitals and clinics before that time and had set up his own training programs before the tsunami as well. So he was one of these kind of forerunners in the movement. And I feel like with his background in music therapy, he was able to do some really interesting things with Shingon. And Shingon I I should also mention literally translates to mantra. So it is the mantra tradition of Japanese Buddhism and so there are many different chants, these mantras that combine with the visualizations and the mudras and these ritual aspects. But he was able to take this Western music therapy and this chaplaincy background in presence and listening and his Shingon practice with chanting and even some of the taiko drumming that can occur with some of the ceremonies as well. And so essentially made some forms of chanting therapy and then even created a whole entire meditation therapy teacher program. He developed a center at his temple and even brings in modern doctors and nurses to train over there and bring some of these practices back into their clinical settings in ways that are still acceptable and legal within contemporary Japanese hospitals. So there's a lot of innovation going on within that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a great example. So so Nathan, are you
2: yourself involved in chaplaincy? Have you been a chaplain in Japan or in America?
1: I, I actually... As part of my participant observation research, I went through Oshta Dayan's training program in meditation therapy and interviewed him, but I also volunteered in Sendai, and especially with one group that I've written about in some places called Café de Monk, which is a really good and, I think, interesting name for the group, because in English, of course, monk means monk, but in Japanese, monku means to complain. So it was a type of listening cafe where volunteer monks, people could come and they could come and monku to the monks (laughs) about their issues in life. He was a Zen priest, actually, Kanata Tayo, who originally set up these moving mobile cafes in the disaster zones and just try to have volunteers be there for people. And these cafe settings, I also ended up volunteering at later on. It sounds like
2: you were there after all of this had been set up and was already running and so forth but at that point you had a lot of experience yourself with thinking about how chaplaincy should be done and you know you'd written a book or edited a book also on caring for buddhist communities and i'm curious if to what extent you were able to contribute to the design of some of these programs or were you strictly there as a participant
1: Oh, yeah, good question. In the more chaplaincy environments, I was always just a volunteer, but I also was technically on staff in one of these main programs I observed for like a whole year process of a two-year program. And I got to see simultaneously through a year to different cohorts. But then eventually there was a couple weekend sessions where they asked me to lead or develop a particular training element in part of the course, or I had some collaborative relationship to do that with them. And through a lot of conversations that occurred with the instructors. I ended up sort of feeling, and many people commented directly to me, that I was a connecting piece between the programs. Mm through those interviews and just questions that would come up naturally through the interview process. they would be suddenly like, oh, but you've participated in that. Have you had any issues or things come up with that as well? Or how does this program do such and such? And so sometimes these little conversational moments would come and little tidbits would come through of, techniques or processes or resources and they'd be like oh actually maybe i'll integrate that into our program here as well and Mm -hmm. so there were these little connective tissues that i never planned on doing but (laughs) ended up organically coming into my role as a researcher as well
2: yeah that's really interesting i mean uh, um there's this traditional sort of like scholarly objectivity you go into the field and you just write about what you see and you don't get involved maybe you do participant observation but you certainly don't like participate in changing the field that you're observing but but with your kind of work to not get involved seems to be ethically problematic when you yeah. have these skills that you have this this knowledge that you could share
1: right and I I guess methodologically on that note, I think I was very influenced by kind of newer anthropologists trying to shift the field. And even there's literature that has come out specifically regarding Japan and Japanese ethnography and some of the problems with traditional understandings of methodology around that because in a sense traditional ethnography and anthropology came up through a very patriarchal and structured top-down version of participant observation where you're only looking at the the natives through this lens and in modern Japan it's a modern country, most people who will ultimately see and interact with your research in some way or another, who have this full understanding of what's going on and questions around that. For my particular position, I'm often interviewing other professors who do ethnography themselves. And so I was particularly really influenced by these more collaborative versions of ethnography, things that take into consideration, what does this research also mean for the community that you're researching? And of course, there's a whole variety of ethical issues around that. But for my particular research, it felt extremely relevant. So I didn't want to just be taking from these people, but participating in in any way to be with them in that process. Yeah, that's really well said.
2: And just a note for listeners that we had Paula Arai on the podcast earlier this season, and she talked a lot about these same issues from her position doing ethnography with a group of women that she became very involved with. Yeah, and so some of what you were just talking about, a few minutes ago about the Cafe the Monk. You have written up as a chapter in a book that just came out, let's see, two months ago. So congratulations on that, called Refuge in the Storm, Buddhist Voices in Crisis Care. And it's an edited volume that collects together a lot of voices from scholars, from chaplains, from members of Buddhist communities, Buddhist leaders, and you address a whole lot of different topics, including large-scale community crises and also smaller-scale health crises, talking about crisis management and crisis working and how Buddhists have responded to crisis and then also speaking I think to practitioners helping them to understand how they can be involved in crisis care as well. So yeah, so I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about how this book fits into your bigger picture of what you've been doing over the last couple of years and where you're where you where you see yourself going next.
1: Sure. So I guess for a little brief part of bio background for how this came up, I was set to come to Japan for my postdoc, and I graduated my Ph.D. around April, May of 2020. Um, Yeah, one of the worst times to graduate and finish a program, and Even if I couldn't do some of these things that I planned to do in Japan, through the process of my research, I had met all of these people involved in crisis in different ways. And the world was going through a number of big crises at the time. And so I ended up just hinting at the idea of, hey, what would you think of us putting together something practical for people out there from our perspectives of crisis care and this sort of snowballed out and i ended up getting quite a good response and this came down to then 25 24 other authors after myself who wrote something to contribute to this volume and I thought it was a really wonderful outpouring and a really diverse set of authors, more than 10 different Buddhist traditions from more than 10 different countries of origin and many different types of voices, bringing in a variety of experiences from working with crisis in each person's own communities in such a variety of ways. And We brought that all together within this one book themed around caring for crisis from a Buddhist perspective. Yeah. We'll definitely link in the show
2: notes to
1: your dissertation.
2: I'll link also to the Refuge in the Storm and to the book that I just mentioned in passing that you published in 2016. It's called A Thousand Hands, a Guidebook to Caring for Your Buddhist Community. And the edited volume chapter that you contributed to the book that I edited is probably not available publicly, but we'll put a link to the book maybe. But, um, uh, what's next? What do you got up your sleeve that you're working on now?
1: I One of the people who I sometimes volunteered with in Sendai in this disaster zone and in training programs and came to be a friend of this really wonderful woman who's a Jodo Shinshu priest. And before the disaster even, she had this really difficult experience with her son and she has twin sons and one of them went through a period of around a month long hospitalization and the process of going through this extremely long hospitalization with lots of uncertainty as a mother was just excruciating at times for her and then going through this extreme disaster as well, she, through those experiences, became really inspired about these new chaplaincy programs developing. And then she volunteered at these hospices and hospitals herself. And as a side hobby throughout her life, uh, she had always been interested in manga drawing. And she ended up drawing a whole novel-length book about her experience, training in these programs and trying to volunteer and the different things she learned in that process and the experiences, the troubles she went through. And so I read it in Japanese, and I just thought it was a wonderful project, and really wanted to share it with English speakers as well. And when I was quarantined essentially for a big part of the pandemic, this was one of my little side projects I did. So, the original name in Japanese is Sono Kanashimi ni Nara by Amano Wako, and I translated that into English as providing presence, which is a little bit simplified, but there's some kind of complex words in Japanese. Yoriso is a really difficult word to translate, but it at least basically gives that sense so providing presence in English. Yeah, cool. We'll link to
2: that as well in the show notes when it's available. You'll have to remember to tell me and I'll go back in and add sure. it, if it if the episode has already gone live. Okay, so Nathan, is there anything that uh, we haven't talked about? Anything that, that I should have asked you that I didn't? Any, anything else that we want
1: to add? I mean, I, I'm thinking I could go back to a number of biographical elements but there's probably so much material that you have at this point well all
2: right then i guess nathan the only thing left to do is to say thank you very much for being here with us i really appreciate your time and sharing your perspective with us and i'm looking forward to seeing you sometime soon uh thank you
0: that's it for today from us at the blue barrel podcast this episode was hosted by pierce alguero and
1: produced and edited by me lan lee all of our music is by jonathan pettit if you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercealguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform you can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash blue
0: until next time be happy and be well